What up, what up, what up? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Across the Intersection podcast. This is AJ in here with A. Smith. And for a special edition of the show this evening, uh, we have a special guest with us this evening. Uh, We have the Democratic candidate for Maryland's 7th District with us tonight, Mr. Safir Robb. Uh, we're going to be you know, having the opportunity to get to know Mr. Rob, ask him a few questions, go into who he is and why he's running. Um, but without further ado, uh, Mr. Rob, please say hello to everyone. Hi, everybody. Good to be here with you this this, this uh, evening. I look forward to a lively conversation. Awesome, awesome. Well, we do thank you for coming on with us um, tonight, Mr. Rob. So uh, without further ado, let's just get right into it. I know you are a busy man running a campaign. <laughs> Um, so give a little bit, um, about yourself. You know, we had a chance to go on your website and see who you were, but for those listening who may have never heard of you or if they're in the Baltimore area and were looking to, um, a, a different candidate, what, um, tell us who Safir Rob is and, and why people should know why you're running. Well, first off, I would say that if they're looking, uh, to get to know me, they should look no further than, than themselves. I am a person who reflects the pulse of, of Baltimore and serves the pulse of Baltimore. I'm from here, uh, and I would say even the broader, the wider district. You know, going, growing up in Baltimore City, I had uh, an uncle who lived in Baltimore County, and so every weekend, almost every weekend, he had some sons. I would uh, I would take the M8 all the way out Liberty Road to get to hang out with them, and then we still have to walk a couple of miles to get to his house in, in Randallstown. Uh, over there on Creek Court by Deer Park, and um, and when my parents, you know, when they divorced when I was around eight, seven, eight years old, uh, my mother moved to Howard County, and I spent a few years going to Atherton Elementary in Hammond Middle, before coming back to Baltimore City, and ultimately graduating from Poly. So I, I'm a I'm a son of of district through and through, and I've had experiences growing up in all three parts, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, as well as Howard County. Um, I'm a person who also has has uh, lost a brother to gun violence and lost another brother to um, to prison who, who he he uh, he was in prison rarely on for 26 years for a crime that he did not commit. And um, so I, I kind of know my family knows firsthand uh, some of the perils and consequences of poor and challenging public safety concerns in the district. Um, and for that, I've devoted my time to doing something about the challenges that we face. So for the last you know 20 years, since I finished undergraduate, I moved back here. I devoted myself to two things. One, um, community development, which has included getting 15, more than 15,000 people uh, off of drugs by, by catering to those who suffer from the disease of addiction and then creating opportunities for those people to have jobs and creating housing for the, for, for the same people in the broader community. Uh, and then internationally, I, I've, uh, I've worked to, to promote you know, strategy and, uh, and responsible uh, uh, strategy that is culturally competent and, um, and you know, bring those resources right back to our district. So that, that's what I've been spending my time doing. And it is uh, it, it, those experiences have, have, I believe, 
led to uh, a, a more, I like to think, enlightened uh, pursuit of electoral rep- representation. And for that, uh, you know, I think this time requires that type of a pursuit, that type of a, uh, experiential background. And for that, I threw my hat in the ring. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and you know, I and forgive me if I if it wasn't very clear. I, when I was on the site, it looks like you've never held political office before. Um, yeah, it's one of my greatest assets. <laughs> um, okay, you know, uh, so, some kind of way people have. I mean, I, I have I have worked worked on the President Obama's transition team. I did work on public diplomacy. I, I brought the President to Baltimore City um, uh, to to engage. In uh, you know, in um, I would say community initiatives. You know, he was very encouraging for me to choose to to do this because he was a person who devoted himself to right. community development, and um, and there were those who had you know elected office prior to him who said, you know, no, you shouldn't run, or you know, wait and kiss the ring, or. And sometimes when the mic was on and those people thought the mic was off, they they even talked about amputating a part of his, you know, his uh, his, his manhood, wow. you know. Wow. <laughs> I, 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 we, we, we can remember that. I think that, uh, that, you know, experience is something that informs judgment and also uh, characterizes what has previously occurred. And a lot of the folks in the district are, are tired of experiencing what they've been experiencing. So the experience of those who have held elected elected office, uh, you know, has has it, it presents as something that might want to be rethought, something that we want to experience something new. So we 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 ought to you know look at folks who who don't have that sort of uh, a background. I mean, Baltimore has been devastated. The surrounding area has been devastated in, in, in certain ways as well, including um, the, the effects of climate change and having multiple 1,000-year floods in the last couple of years. Right. Like, we have to prioritize and do something about these issues, and it doesn't take the same sort of thinking. It takes a new uh, sort of thinking, and, uh, and and for that, I encourage other folks as well to, um, to bring what they have to offer for 21st century solutions um, to, to the fore. Definitely. Now that that brings me to one of my later questions. So I'm, I'm just going to jump it up here because when you mentioned what you just said, it it kind of clicked in my mind. So as you're, you know, a, a fresh face, so to speak, who isn't a career politician um, and, you know, not that we're trying to disparage anyone. But what what specifically makes you, you know, different or a, a, a different choice than some of your, you know, some of your competitors, as well as the late Congressman Cummings? I would say that was the two things. So, so for Congressman Cummings, I can start with him uh, because he did a he did a good job and built a good reputation as someone who, uh, you know, was respected at, in the district and someone who did a good job as a uh, on the, as a chairman of the oversight committee. And those are wonderful things. I think that you know, as a civil rights oriented thinker and practitioner and attorney, he's a person who was good for an era that required that as a, you know, those competencies as the central qualifier for 
you know, governance and for legislation during that period of time. You know, these days we need a, we need to build on what he's done and uh, respect the fact that his son has set and recognize that we are living in the dawn of a new day. And the dawn of this new day is, you know, looking to and requiring new opportunities for young people to engage them. You know, we have we have we've failed the young folks. I mean, there's nothing to do in the city. There are, you know, many of the, the public uh, uh, amenities for recreation and such are closed. And the uh, that which has a direct correlation and direct negative impact on public safety. Um, you know, that that's 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 problematic. And we have, you know, uh, um, uh, streaming wars that are that are happening between, you know, multi-platform media companies that want to source new content. Um, the temperament of of those sorts of ideas is uh, a, a an idea that must be championed by someone who understands those arenas and how to bridge into them. Um, now, regarding the uh, the distinction between other people who are interested in, in the seat, what distinguishes me is that I'm a practitioner. I'm a person who's already been providing the solutions, and I understand the challenges of our day-to-day -day needs and, and where they are uh, oftentimes deficient or, uh, or, or failing. And, um, and uh, you know... I understand what could uh, be different and could be legislated in a different way in order to get different results from a practitioner's perspective. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, just me personally, as you know, when I was doing some research just on your campaign and, and some of the other folks who are in the, um, who are also running for the seat, you know, I, it, what you just said kind of made a little bit of a sense because it, it looked like some people were kind of plugged in and connected because I saw some of them had like four followers on Twitter and were already blue checked, verified. And so I was kind of like, wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting because some of the people who were running I had never heard of and didn't know. So it just it kind of stood out to me um, that you are someone who are who is on the ground and is practicing some of the things that you preach. So I can I can definitely um, appreciate that. Avery, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I do have a couple of questions for you. Um, well, one in particular, uh, Safir, is uh, did I pronounce your name correct? Yeah, Safir. That's right. All right, cool, cool, cool. What does Safir mean, by the way? It means ambassador. It means uh, one who looks beneath the surface in search of truth. My father picked that name, and um, he actually picked it for himself in, in, in an era where um, you know it, it was common to change your name. And uh, I, I'm, I'm the second, and then my son is the third. Okay, I got it. Okay, um, cool, cool, cool. What, what is that Arabic? It is. Yes. Got it. Uh, so, question I have is: How do you plan to address the forced, depressed housing scenario? And I'm talking specifically about, about Baltimore City. Uh, how do you plan to address the forced, depressed housing scenario where there are investment property owners who sit on dilapidated housing in hopes of the value rising? Uh, but in the meantime, leave the homes unattended, which foster dangerous neighborhoods for the people that live there. Well, first, I'll say this, the same way that I've been addressing that phenomenon, which is uh, going after it. 
Um, so, you know, one of after the houses themselves. So I, I'll give you a couple of examples as to as to what I mean. Um, you know, there are people, you know, that that live in houses, many of whom, and some of whom are not um, absentee landlords. They they just uh, have houses, and the house maybe ha have become, you know, uh, something inherited. It may even be something that's used as a house for illicit activity, like, you know, getting high. And we've been able to go into those houses, persuade the people to come into our programs, uh, you know, pursue, you know, uh, treatment on demand, because we have to have a solution to a lifestyle that offers drugs on demand. Um, so we're open 24, hour, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we, we've led people into you know, a process of food, clothing, shelter, counseling for a one-year protocol. For those that owned houses or had access to housing stock uh, that that uh, were a part of, you know, contributing to, to blight, uh, that we've been able to resuscitate their humanity. And then we've, we've put their houses either in uh, a sort of holding uh, receivership so that as they complete their treatment, we can help them use the asset that they have to build a life. Um, so first off, it's always about the constituent. How do we understand the constituents and how do we make certain services are provided for the constituent? That's what, you know, the, 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 the district legislative uh, activities and representation must hold first, in my estimation, in my opinion. Second, I, I think that, you know, there, there, there are a lot of good efforts that are disconnected from resources that are already available to interrupt, you know, blight, um, community development block grant money, uh, home funds money, both of which are funded by the federal government and hold 27% set-asides about them that are restricted for community housing development organizations. Uh, many times people don't know what community housing development organizations are or how to access the set-asides that exist within these federally funded resources. That has got to become more transparent so that folks can see the opportunity in, uh, in, in existing uh, resources that are underutilized or un un untapped for the sheer lack of awareness. If people knew that these utilities were available, then they would be more engaging of them. I think that a lot of times the bureaucracy associated with federally sourced uh, resources to correct problems sort of uh, uh, such as the, uh, the blight that we see related to housing uh, were more known to the people of the district, we would be able to do much more about it. The third thing I'll say is this. Now, clearly, at, at its face, the, you know, the, the mayor uh, and the local and state, the mostly local legislators, are responsible for a lot of what happens related to housing stock. But there are federal resources that can be organized in a way that lowers the cost of, of pursuing and participating in home ownership. We can expand such ideas. We've already done it. So, um, you know, uh, I, I remember when I wanted to provide a, to build a therapeutic community for people who came through the, the drug treatment program, I can't, we can. And I, I found about low income housing tax credits and have uh, subsequently developed a low income housing tax credit project. Um, you know, in pursuing that, the rule was, if you've not done a tax credit project, then you can't do a tax credit project. So I think that, you know, there, there's sort of grandfather clause, Jim Crow-esque laws and rules that, that, that prevent new entrants.
from coming in and competing for federal resources that are designed to address, you know, these notions of blight. It's a big subject, and there are more examples that I can give, but I would, in general, relax the access to resources and make more simplistic the uh, the, the awareness of, of uh, resources to the people who are operating at the most profound level, such that we can increase ownership. You know, there's a scholar named Hernando de Soto, and he's gone all, all around the world promoting the idea that if property rights are uh, fortified for the people who live in municipalities and, and within communities, then they will actually have a, a greater sense of pride and a greater stabilization uh, effect than, than, than not. So I'm all about making certain that we increase home ownership uh, and increase access to you know resources that will enable people to both own homes and provide redress for blight. So, uh, and and and, and if, if if there are people sitting on homes that uh, that are that are uh, reinforcing the blight, then we ought to legislate that away as well. Well, yeah. So that's what that's the question that I have for you. Um, uh, and uh, thank you for answering the question as far as uh, what happens when people are um, it's it's owner occupied uh, and the house messed up. Uh, and I, I'm I'm actually also. Um, uh, or my question was more so con concerned with those who are absentee landlords, like what's on your website. And um, if they legally own the home, they purchase the home, let's say they got one of these dollar houses or uh, one, one, one of these, one of these homes that would distress many years ago um, during a different time period where things were, they bought the homes and then they just kind of let it sit. A tree is growing through it. The home is falling apart. And then um, you may have like eight, nine, four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine homes that are uh, abandoned. And then you have two or three homes on that block or around the corner where, where five people are living, living there. But because of all of that blight, there really is no, no, um, no city resources allocated to that area. Um, I'm wondering, like, well, what what can the recourse be? Because when you're talking about property rights, it's my understanding that because there are rights, then these rights uh, cannot necessarily be uh, impeded on by the government. And therefore, if somebody bought a house and sits on a house, even though they're absentee landlord, even though they're uh, gunshots flying and big rats and all that other stuff, they 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 legally own that house. So I'm wondering, like, well, you know, well, 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 that's Mm -hmm. legal, legal ownership does not provide, does not uh, establish the impermissibility of redress in the wake of, you know, neglect, in the wake okay. of, you know, so we, we could, in fact, you know, go after and, you know, force rece receivership, but that would be something that would have to be done in conjunction with the local municipality. I would definitely advocate for actions that Life will be tied to federal resources such that the local municipality, you know, is is more stringent and strong about, you know, you 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 move it or lose it. Like, I mean, we cannot continue to have and, and there, there are precedents for this, like Dudley Street in Boston, where, you know, large land banking occurred to make certain that folks that were contributing to blight. Uh, if they if they didn't do something about what was de deteriorating our communities, uh, then they would they would place the you know the um, the homes that they had in in receivership. There are already receivership programs within the city 
life one house at a time where, you know, if taxes or previous to, to, to recently uh, water bills, but if, you, if, if there are municipal debts that have not been covered, taxes haven't been covered, then there, there's a statute that provides the ability for the local municipality to move against the owner, take the, take the home into receivership and auction it off. Um, so that that's already happening. I think that, you know, that idea should should be um, expanded and moved more aggressively in a way that, you know, links to constituent services so we can have a good quality of life in every part of the city. OK, OK. So you're saying just so I, and I know we'll move to the next question, but I just so that I'm clear, um, you're saying that there are. Uh, there, there are precedents for what's called receivership programs, which basically means that the local municipality has a particular protocols in order to uh, in order to acquire or basically uh, take the home back if the home is being neglected. Yes. Okay. And um, for because and my thought behind that is uh, okay. So if I, my understanding is that sometimes or many times a municipality may be concerned about taking that home back because they're like, okay, well, if this absentee landlord is just paying the property taxes, at least we're getting property taxes. So are you, is there, are you also saying that there are like federal funds or some kind of something that could cover those property taxes in the case of when that property gets acquired or taken back by a municipality and it goes on the auction block, there is like, a period of time in which where those property taxes are not being covered, um, do you think that there's some kind of like, uh, I guess, um, subsidy for that? Or am I not thinking about it correctly? Well, I mean, I, I think that there are two issues. One, if if, if, if owners are compliant, mm. uh, then you can't take their property, okay? If, but the definition of compliance has to be delved into. If compliance stops at the idea of paying one's taxes alone, then it's a it's kind of a low bar and it reinforces blight. If Got compliance it. is raised to include, you know, um, public safety or you know dilapidated circumstance or you know not being dilapidated or just like a, you know a, a blight in the community or a, a place that doesn't have uh, lead in it. A place that is is not contributing to the health and vibrance of a neighborhood. So there are ways of defining compliance that you know need. And in many cases, it's it, it, they already exist, um, and that's why that's why people get fines when they're not cutting their grass or they're you know the house is abandoned. I mean, there 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 are standards that have to be met that go beyond just paying taxes, and way too often. There, you know, no one says anything about, or, or the, the city hasn't caught up with with uh, those who've who've contributed to blight, even though there may be statutes or precedents that provide a basis to disallow these activities. We need to be a little more bullish about about this in a way that that incorporates the people who live there, and in a way that provides opportunities for for improvement to our neighborhoods. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Not a problem. Okay, so um, you know, I asked you the big juicy question that I'm sure many of our listeners uh, would like to know. And um, what are your? And I got another one after this, and then we can keep it pushing. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, reparations for African Americans in the U.S.? 
okay. I, I think that it's, it's for sure something that we got to pursue. We have to um, study it and understand how to make it happen. I mean, here's the deal. There are precedents for reparations all around the world. There's precedents for reparations for people who were uh, in the Holocaust, that, that were um, that were abused by by the elected dictator named Hitler, and you know converted the democratic you know uh, uh, representation uh, of uh, of Germany to one that was despotic and fascist, and um, we should be reminded that he was in fact elected. And so it's not far-fetched for, you know, irresponsible rhetoric to convert into something that is that is really deleterious and hurtful to the, to our entire republic. It is not outside of the realm of the possible. Um, we don't need to go back further than 70 years or less than 70 years to even to see that in the, in the uh, 1940s uh, and, and, and prior to uh, in, in, in Germany, Nazi Germany came from an elective process. But reparations were provided to the citizens of that country that happened to be of the Jewish uh, ethnicity and faith uh, for, for what they experienced, the abuses they experienced. Um, and his, his gripe and beef was, you know, it went beyond just those people. They, they, were, they were white supremacists. Um, there were reparations that were given to the Japanese that were interned in, in the United States of America. There were reparations given to those who were American Indians or Native Americans um, that were abused by the, the people who, who, who came here and took their land. Um, so we have a system now that aims to, and is an evolving system, that aims to aspire toward decency. And I believe that the relevance of African Americans within the history of this nation are uh, is is understated and does require redress, more redress than has already occurred. I'm not certain that that redress is something that is is just paid for. Um, and, and you know, because I looked at I look I look at the concept of reparations and how it's been meted out on reservations of American Indians, and I'm not pleased with what I see. I see multi billion dollars worth of transactions and wealth. Uh, but I also see, you know, uh, rampant vital statistics uh, that 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 are hurtful to the people there, including alcoholism, including, you know, certain gambling addictions, including uh, poor housing, uh, infirm housing, et cetera. So giving special amenities in and of itself is not uh, a wholesale way to provide redress to the damage, the psychological damage, the long-term effects of, of damage that, that come along with the history of, of uh, African-Americans in this country. Uh, I think it's something that, that should be engaged and should be studied, and we should come up with a real solution that is, is supported fiscally uh, to implement. Okay, um, thank you very much. And the next, the next question that I have for you and I, then I'll pass it back to um, AJ, is uh, what are your thoughts on improving health outcomes for Black people specifically? Health outcomes? Yes. Well, okay. So we have within our district, you know, the 2 and 2 and 4, 2 and 2 and 5, 2 and 2 and 6, 2 and 2 and 7 census tracts associated with those zip codes 
that have vital statistics that are very difficult to witness um, in anywhere, uh, any place in the world, but particularly difficult to witness in the wealthiest, most powerful, most accessed to technology nation on the face of the planet. We have vital statistics associated with infant mortality, associated with you know the the uh, the morbidity rates of uh, African American males at age 58. Folks are checking out. So Congressman Elijah Cummings actually beat the average by 10 years, and we should know that. Um, the the uh, HIV AIDS rates, intravenous drug use rates. I mean, you know, I my, my gripe is this. I feel as though the awareness of these concerns are not on the tip of the tongue or tip of the conscience of those people who we've elected to represent us. And many of them are not nervous or moved about dissatisfying the constituents that they are, that they are there to represent. And that is a big problem. The empathy, the adaptability, the intellectual curiosity associated with service lacks within the you know characteristics sets and the uh, the past performance and behavior of the people that I that I typically see representing the the folks for this district, and I'll say that uh, the, the the having these these vital statistics and these within these zip codes that hold these census tracts that can rival sub-Saharan Africa in some instances is something that we ought to really be concerned with because well, the underdevelopment of sub-Saharan Africa should, should you know, that should be fixed. We ought to deal with it. But for sure, uh, in, a, in, a, in a nation like the United States of America, uh, that, that bodes of a certain neglect for the citizens that live here. Well, and, uh, and we got to do something about it. So the best thing I can, I can say, you know, is, is the, 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 the right way to know what someone will do is to look at what someone has done. We have 15,000 people who suffered from the disease of addiction and were characterized by all of the, the, the poor and suffering vital statistics. And, and they weren't just black, because when you're addicted to a self-destructive way of thinking, such that you want a mood-changing, mind-altering substance to make you feel a little better, uh, it doesn't care whether you're black or white or gay or whatever. It, it only cares that you are willing to build a tolerance to make your physiology addicted to some controlled substance, illicit substance. And to interrupt that, it was a holistic approach. One of the things that we did was recognize- Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize. I, I kind of want to, because uh, that's kind of going into answering a different kind of question. Um, because okay. because those that the, the, those are, 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 are certain types of illnesses that are behavioral. Um, I'm I'm focusing more on uh, 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 il illness that is due to a lack of uh, you, and you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier in your answer, uh, and that is through neglect of the fact that people don't care. And I'm talking specifically about the biology, the genetic composition and makeup of Black people. The entire world basically stands on the shoulders of uh, research on Black people, and yet when you look at uh, so many of the mortality rates and health outcomes when it comes to your standard diseases, black people, and not just not necessarily people of color, but black people specifically, have the highest mortality rates. 
And so, so, so the idea of um, turning around and say, okay, well, we want to improve health outcomes for everybody. Well, that's cool, but then that does not necessarily bring bring about equity. Um, I'm talking about what 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 can be done to specifically focus on the the health outcomes of those who have been most blighted historically. Um, what can be specifically done for them, and that that and that's how I see that tying back to the reparations uh, question. But that's that. that so first. So let, let me let me just let me just give you um, perspective about my my, my thinking uh, on, on this, and mm-hmm. you know you may agree, you may disagree, but I'm going to give you my thought process. Okay, I, I I I'm familiar with what you just described, and I and I, I appreciate your you know the, the the seriousness with which you clearly have thought about it, researched it, and the passion about which you believe in it. I will say this. There are people who want to draw from resources that exist, uh, and and they're right to want to draw on those resources. If they're an American citizen, they pay their taxes, and, and they 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 should be entitled to the exact same amenities, resources, healthy living, you know, uh, prosperity of every other American citizen. And disproportionately, there are benefits that skew in a direction that excludes certain parts, including African-Americans. Yeah, I mean, uh, you in, yourself, in a, dis- in a, in a you disproportionate way. You gonna let me finish? Yeah, let ahead, him, let him ahead, answer the question. Just paint, just paint the picture, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, in, in, in a disproportionate way. So so I think I think that the uh, the this becomes then a matter of strategy. How do we move the needle in a way that includes people who've been excluded? The tendency is this. When we concentrate on characteristics that divide us, there is a tendency to siloize. That's what I've witnessed over and over and over and over again, where one group says, okay, well, this group is excluded, so we ought to get this. And the tendency of the group think of people who don't identify with those that have been excluded tends to be, that's your problem. And it's not my problem. When we concentrate with more emphasis on what is universal, human beings, that we are all human beings and we all are in this. When we concentrate on that, then it gives, it it, it, it loops in everyone on the basis of that you can't then exclude yourself and say, that's not my problem. Because now we've concentrated on what universalizes and connects everybody. Now we say, okay, now, here's everybody. We're all in this together. Where is this parity occurring? You can't consider yourself a human being and see that these human beings over here are the victims of exclusion, lack, high morbidity rates, etc. And these human beings over here are enjoying the fruits of everything, you know, bountiful about our land. It then makes culpable. It makes an obligation for every one of the human beings to deal with the parts of our human family that is disproportionately dealt with or excluded. And that, I hope you understand what I'm saying. We can exclude parts of our society and make the problem that that part of the society's problem, or we can include as a viewpoint the universal view of human excellence and make certain that we move as a human family to provide parity 
where parity doesn't exist. It then becomes an obligation of those people who have clearly demonstrated that they will withdraw and allow parts of you know our society, our district, to become the victim of neglect, the victim of exclusion, or the victim of, of not having access to certain information. It can't be that way if we obligate everyone to see themselves in the picture. Concentrating on what unites us actually gives value to the parts of our district or our humanity that makes us different. It is an important strategic thought process and one that shows up in a very defensible way for legislation. Now, that's a very good uh, response, Mr. Robin. Um, We're going to throw a couple more hardball questions before we lob up some softballs for you. I do appreciate you. I'm feeling my Cal Ripken, my my, 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 my inner maze. So with with that being said, how do you expect to to work with, with with lawmakers who are ideologically different than you? Because though what you said, you know, maybe a little, you know, little. All right, let's all come together, you know, kumbaya type stuff. But everybody's not going to think like that. So where you will have people whose sole focus is to separate and segment the populace. Um, how do you? What are some of your plans um, to to work with people like that? First of all, I, you know, by not siloizing myself, I've experienced, you know, a um, a lifestyle where if people are hungry and you're able to connect with other people on the basis of, you know, a problem, not on the basis of how different I am from you, it is a greater likelihood that you'll solve the problem. We produce 65,000 pounds of food in Park Heights per year. In Park Heights. So we deal by, thereby with, you know, climate change concerns because we're not trucking food from a far off place to this food desert that is our surrounding surrounding area. We can replicate and scale that. The decency, the thoughtfulness, the service within that as an idea, it creates jobs, it feeds people, it deals with climate change in a responsible way. And I find that these there's a uniting element of this that actually pulls people together and makes people want to champion and makes people want to be a part of that which has meaning that which has purpose and it's my experience is it's a, it's a stronger pull than you know bigoted siloizing racist behavior of, and people who think like that and yes i'm not, it's not kumbaya we're all together but it is, here are the issues, this train is moving, get on it or get out of the way. And, and I'm telling you that I've experienced more results. We give the food away for $1 per pound, unless you don't have any money, in which case it's free. But if you have a little more money, give a little more. We wind up averaging $5 per pound. That, my friend, is something that I believe can create jobs, can, can interrupt food security, can deal with climate change, real solutions for real people, not just speculative bullcrap that doesn't work across difference and concentrate on on you know the work and solutions at the most profound level and I, you know that's what I'm all about I've I've worked with I'm willing to work with anybody who's 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 willing to look at a problem and deal with the problem from the from the perspective of how do we make a solution if they if they're creating a problem instead of solving a problem then we have to address that but I, I found more often than not. That, uh, that this approach lends itself to working across all forms of difference and provides solutions for the constituents that I care about. Okay. 
Um, and with with that notion of, of siloizing, I actually like that term, um, <clears throat> which, you know, and I that I will agree with. A lot of people do do that for, you know, for the better or worse, people do tend to stay in their silos. Um, and so with that, I, I, I want to throw this question out because we've been dancing around it. And I just want to know your I don't necessarily want to hear what your you know, what yours is, but I would love to know your thoughts about it. So. I know you've seen probably on the news we're in a presidential campaign as well, and a lot of the presidential um, people who are running for the, in, running for president, particularly Democratic um, candidates, um, people sometimes will corner them with the question of what is their specific agenda for African Americans? Do you have an African American agenda? Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you what your African American agenda is. I, I would like to know what your thought is just on the concept of an African American agenda is that necessary, um, and if you know, if so, why, and if and and if not, uh, why? Well, I think that um, I think that an agenda has to be in, in place for um, every part of America, okay, and every part of this district. When we talk about an African American agenda, like it's difficult to think about such an idea as a monolith without thinking about a whole lot of diversity because you have people, most of the people who I connect to, you know, uh, in, in the, in, in my district are suffering. Right. Right. They are poor. They are people who need help. And a lot of the people who gain access to influence agendas, uh, to write, to become policymakers or influencers, are oftentimes disconnected from the very people who need the help. And that disconnection may inform the way in which, uh, you know, the thought processes occur for African-Americans. So I don't, I don't like the idea of, of, uh, of, of making it, you know, solely based on uh, an undefined concept of an African-American agenda. Now, if you say African-American agenda, you know, you know, that, that is deliberately looking at, uh, achieving parity or achieving, you know, um, um, uh, an equal or even playing field. I think it's an obligation for every person who's running for public office to consider those who are responsible in great measure for building this country. And that's African-Americans. I mean, we, we were the labor. That, that provided this country. We've evolved out of, you know, this, the forcible way that we came here. Everybody came here as an immigrant. We just didn't, we came as immigrants against our will. That's our history. And we need to consider that. We need to think about that. We need to figure out with, with, with intentional purpose, okay, how do we make certain that those people who are sick, those people who are suffering, those people who are being murdered, those people who have find hope in illicit behavior because there is no hope in you know complying with the law because there's no hope in educational access to educational or vocational or post-secondary education for the vast majority of the people who who would require that or that you know constitute our cities they find hope in in, in places that that you know uh that uh, are um uh the opposite of lawfulness oftentimes they have to hustle they have to survive because they've not been considered. And that, that devastation of not being considered results in the way our neighborhoods look. 
that dev devastation and not being considered results in a nihilistic and, and, and you know, hopeless attitude. That, that uh, devastation and neglect, uh, which results in hopelessness, turns very quickly to apathy. I'm not going to engage in the political process. I'm not going to engage because it won't matter anyway. And then that turns into animosity and angst. And the hope in order to get food, clothing, and shelter just for basic survival for many of the people in our district, uh, it begins to, to, to look toward, uh, you know, crime and becomes a threat to public safety. Uh, if, if we don't understand that as, as elected officials and legislators, then, you know, there's a great likelihood that the, that the problems will not change. And way too many of the people who are running for this office, they don't understand or have the temperament uh, and or the, the service devotion to doing something about these these uh this this logical process so yeah you, you got to have an agenda uh, i would i would say for african americans and specifically uh for people who are who are uh suffering i, I you know that I, I don't like the idea of, of saying african americans or excluding some african americans or uh, putting parading people who've managed to become outliers who've managed to succeed you know there are two and a half million African-American men in prison right now. Right. All right. So what are we doing about that? Right. So I, 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 I would I, I would specifically target that as not just African-Americans, but but the, the brunt of what is uh, is not enjoying a good American life. Uh, you know, that that's that's where I would target. And, and that's I think that there should be an obligation for any person in public office to think through and have a solution for that part of our population. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're gonna throw a couple softball questions now. How about <laughs> how about we throw hey, a couple softballs now? I still got my, my inner Willie Mays going, brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did see that you have a lot of international experience and that you even speak Arabic. Um, is is your family from a, another nation or are you a native African American? I mean, four hundred years ago, we were we were, <laughs> we, were, we, were some, we were from somewhere. I don't know. Uh, but yes, I, I'm. I was born in Baltimore, uh, raised in Baltimore. My mother was from Eastern Shore. My, my 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 father, my father's father, was from South Carolina, and his mother was from North Carolina, respectively. And wow, and it goes back trace our our roots to, to the extent that we can um, to this country. No doubt. No, I just it's it's very rare that you see someone who can speak Arabic. So I was like, wow, I wonder if he's from a Arabic speaking country. That's just all that question was in reference to. Um so another another softball for you. So and this is kind of a, a generic question, but I would just love to get your thoughts on it. You know, sure. as you're as you're running and for those listening, by the way, if you live in Maryland seventh district, uh the special election uh primaries on the fourth, so please get out to vote in February fourth. Um, but in the age of Trump, you know, just keeping it 100, how does it feel running for office in the age of Trump and with the impeachment process going? Because one of the things, unfortunately, that I, I find um, is that a lot of candidates will just be anti-Trump as opposed to being pro anything else. It's just always oh, just I'm, I'm against Trump. And I just want to know, like, is like, what are your thoughts as you're running for a congressional seat in, in this age and you know, with this mindset of a lot of people um, just being so anti-Trump, they're not even going to have a, a, a platform, so to speak? I don't like being anti anything. I like being pro whatever I'm about. Right. Like, I'm not running against any of the people that are running for this seat. I'm running for the seat. Good. And 
Why? Because I think I'm the best, you know, candidate. And I believe that if if you know that you know, there's a problem, you're uniquely qualified to pursue, you know, solving the problem. You know, it's not only an obligation, it may even be a, a downright sin to the creator and to the universe to not stand up and to not do what you have to do uh, in service of the people, um, you know, to, to, that, that, that will benefit from solving that problem. I think about myself in that way. I think that um, that we that this is an era that um, requires more enlightened politics. It requires people to think thoughtfully. It requires people to think toward 21st century solutions. It requires, you know, that we think, okay, how do we unite? This is a movement. This is an era. I hope everyone who thinks like me, who knows himself to be a person who uh, is, a, you know, a problem solver and have you know, devoted themselves to actually doing actions, not just talking about doing actions or writing, saying that they're writing, you know, laws or whatever they, you know, people delude themselves into, you know, believing themselves to, to be more than they are. What, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, servant. I'm a, I'm a solution maker. And I want to do that in concert with other people who believe the same way and are bold, bold enough to, you know, hug the streets and stand up to bullies. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's what we do. It's all real. And, um, you know, I, I hope people, people are inspired by it, by the movement that, that, that we see in our era, because in the next 10, 15 years, a lot of the people in, in, uh, current elected office are going to pass away. That's just what time it is. They're, they're, you know, they've, they've, they've held the reins for a real long time. And, uh, you know, we, we got to recognize that for our, our children and grandchildren to be. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. Thanks for answering that question. I got one more for you. Uh, where do you think the answers to the problems in our society come from? Where do the answers to the problems come from? Yes. The, they come, they, ideally, they come from the people. I was always taught that the solution is inside the problem. And the people are in the society, so we ought to be deriving the solutions from the people. You know, we have an era where we can actually synthesize and collect data and information like never before. Why would we not be pulling in information and making more accessible the thought process to derive solutions in a way that includes the people, includes the people? This, this is really the definition of what democracy is and what it was always intended to be. Um, we have multi-platform media. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know all these uh, uh, devices that help us communicate. We should we should be bringing in ideas, and those ideas should uh, inform solutions. We should process those ideas, and they should be derived from the from the very people that are either within our district or having great success dealing with similar uh, problems elsewhere. And we should replicate them. Nice. Well, Mr. Rob, we do thank you. Did, did you have any closing remarks? In closing, did you have anything you want to just um, share with everybody sure, I mean, listening? Okay, February 4th. My, my, my website, of course, is Safir, S-A-A-F-I-R, 4-F-O-R, Congress, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S. -S. That's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Safir for Congress, S-A-A-F-I-R-F-O-R-C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S.com uh, or on all, all the platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Uh, I, look, we have a few days, five days left. We can stand up and send one of your own to Congress to represent us 
and I, I hope that everyone's listening, everyone's reaching, this is reaching, you know, you, you think deeply about some of the concerns. Help me to understand what your concern is and, uh, and join us in this, in this movement to make certain that we make, uh, we, we recognize what, what, what the issues are, both in Baltimore City, Howard County, Baltimore County, and, uh, and we make up our minds that we're going to make our contribution. I certainly have, and I need your vote. So uh, please, I'm asking everybody, vote for me on February 4th. Show up. Let's turn up. Let's get this. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mr. Rob. Again, everybody, that is Safir for Congress. Please go and support Mr. Rob's campaign. Um, links to his site will be on the episode when it's posted. So you will you'll be seeing this um, before the election. So if you listen, all the links to support his campaign, make sure you get out and vote support financially whatever you need to do as always you can check us out at divemedia.co that is divemedia.co this podcast is everywhere podcasts are ingested and we're um, on all platforms so again mr rob we do thank you for your time and uh you know answering our questions and uh you know thank you guys we, uh look look forward for everything to happen for you on, on february 4th all right thank you right, bye-bye Squad.